following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. I'm going to have you turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy, chapter 1. And our text will be, we'll begin the reading at verse 6 and read it down to the end of the chapter. Um, So follow with me as I read. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So let's pray together. And as we go to pray, I do want us to uh, remember to pray for Pastor Nick. He's going to be leaving on Monday, and he'll be traveling to uh, Nigeria. He'll be gone for a couple of weeks, and it's going to be a very a grueling schedule and a busy time of, of preaching and ministering and helping with the continued uh, ordering and organization of the seminary there. So we certainly want to remember him in our prayers and then, of course, continue to pray uh, for little Oliver uh, that he will be found. We prayed for him, I think, in the adult Sunday school class. And many of you have been praying for uh, Talene and uh, uh, Harold's uh, little boy. So let's pray for him as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come before you again in prayer this morning, we first of all thank you that you have preserved and kept Nick and I while we were away and brought us back to the people we love, the church here at Emmanuel. We thank you for this church and for all of the officers of our church and all the members of our church and for their love and their prayers for us. We pray for Pastor Nick as he will be flying a long way uh, to Nigeria to give himself in labor for the cause of Christ there these weeks. And we ask that your hand would be upon him in all that he does. We pray that you would protect him from physical harm and danger, that he would return to us safely, that you would keep him from sickness that would be a hindrance to him in his work. And we pray that you would prosper his ministry, his teaching, his preaching, his counseling, his giving guidance, and we pray that all of this would work out and turn out to the furtherance of the gospel and the continued work of the training of men to preach the gospel throughout that land. Our Father, we continue to pray for the Burge family, for Talin and Harold and this terrible thing that has happened. And Oh, Father, we know that you are all-seeing and all-knowing, and that you know where Oliver is, that, that you know exactly where he is, and we pray that you would protect him, and, and we pray you would keep him, and we pray that you would direct those who are searching for him 
to the right place that they might find him, that we might praise you and give glory to you for your goodness. And now we ask that you would give us understanding as we seek to understand this portion of your word, to understand what it means, and then to understand its relevance to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, let me begin uh, this morning by saying something about the content uh, text of uh, this, uh, Paul's second epistle to Timothy. It's a very moving letter. <clears throat> Paul is, <clears throat> is up in years now. He's probably in his 60s. And he writes this letter. As he writes this letter, he is in prison in chains for preaching the gospel. This is his second imprisonment in Rome, and he awaits his final trial. He doesn't expect to be acquitted, as is made clear as you read through the letter. So he writes to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, who at the same time is an Asia minor laboring for the gospel in Ephesus. And these are difficult days for the Christian church. It's a dark time. Not like the early days when it was a great spiritual awakening and Paul is preaching and churches are being planted and people are being converted. No, this is a, a later in his ministry, it's a dark time, and the Apostle Paul, the great apostle, is in prison and soon to be off the scene. And also the persecution of Christians that was instigated by Nero is now in full swing. Likewise, false teaching is <coughs> making inroads into many of the churches, and there are are leaders who have fallen into very serious error and heresy. Uh, Paul mentions two of them by name in chapter 2. And in Asia, there's been an almost wholesale defection from Paul and his teaching. In verse 15 of this chapter, we read these sad, even shocking words, this you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me. So here is Timothy He's about to have even greater responsibilities placed upon his shoulders at a time like this when the church of Christ is facing so many challenges. Now, from a purely human perspective, Timothy's not the obvious choice for such a task. For one thing, Timothy is comparatively young. Paul had urged him in his first letter to let no one despise your youth, and in this second letter, written just a few years later, he exhorts him to flee youthful lust. So he must have been, at least comparatively speaking, young for the position of responsibility that he held. Secondly, he's also physically frail. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul speaks of what he calls Timothy's frequent infirmities without telling us what they are, but whatever they are, they are frequent. And he also tells him to take a little wine for his stomach's sake, so stomach issues were one, is one of them. And then thirdly, there are indications that Timothy is naturally timid. He isn't the kind of personality who is brimming full of natural self-confidence. At one point, Paul had to tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. So, he could tend to be a bit fearful, and that comes out really throughout this letter a number of times. So this is Timothy. As Stott puts it, he was young in years, frail in physique, and retiring in disposition. It's not the picture of a strong person, a, a Mr. Personality Guy, full of charm and confidence, gifted in marketing and advertising, an expert in cutting-edge technology. No, it's more the picture of a guy who's a bit shy, has a bad stomach, and looks way too young for what he's doing. And yet, he's the man. This is God's man for the hour. A man who is now being thrust into this situation of increased responsibility and Christian leadership. What is he to do? Well, Paul writes this letter and he tells him what he must do and what we all must do in difficult days, and really what we must do all the time. And this is one of the reasons I love uh, Paul's second epistle to Timothy. In this letter, Paul tells us what to do. And he starts right here in the first chapter, which in a sense provides something of the framework of everything else that follows in the rest of this letter. After telling Timothy in the introduction how he thanks God for him, he prays for him, 
He remembers his sincere faith and that of his mother and his grandmother and so on. The main body of the letter begins in verse 6, where I began the reading. And my goal in the time remaining today is not to cover everything that's here in great detail, but I want to try to give something of an overview of the main lines of thought from verse 6 down to the end of this first chapter. Paul's emphasis in verses 6 to 18, it can be uh, easily organized under two major headings when you gather everything together that's in this chapter. First, the directives that he gives, and then second, the motives and encouragements that he applies. So let's consider it from those two perspectives. First of all, the exhortations and directives that he gives to Timothy, and there are three of them three of them. The first one is this. He tells Timothy to stir up your gift. Stir up your gift. Verse 6. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now the general idea here is pretty clear uh, though the exact meaning of some of the details has been debated. There are a number of opinions but I don't want to get bogged down here but let me just tell you what I think and why I think this. The first question this raises is what gift is being referred to? Well, I think the best explanation is that Paul is referring to the power and authority given to Timothy to be a minister of the gospel, his ministerial gift, equipping him for his office as a gospel minister. And I say that because this gift here is connected to the laying on of Paul's hands, which seems to be a reference to Timothy's ordination the time when Timothy was set apart for the gospel ministry. Paul gives a similar exhortation in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. And there he writes, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. And there Paul mentions the eldership laying hands on Timothy. Here he simply mentions himself laying hands on Timothy. And I think the reason is that here Paul is addressing Timothy in a more personal way. Uh, But we we gather from this that the eldership had laid hands on Timothy and Paul was there with them and he himself had laid hands on Timothy. But the next question is, was the gift actually conferred by the outward sign? Well, it's possible, I guess, because remember, Paul was an apostle, so someone may interpret it that way. And apostles were unique. They were able to do things like that. But we don't have apostles today. Or it could simply mean, and I think it does mean, probably means, Uh, what the laying on of hands means when we have an ordination today. Namely, that Timothy was already given by God the gifts necessary for his office as a gospel minister. But at at his ordination, those gifts or this gift was publicly recognized and conferred symbolically by Paul himself together with the other elders of the church there by the laying on of hands. This is the way, for example, Calvin interprets it. But either way, the point is this. Paul is saying, Timothy, God has gifted you and called you to be a preacher of the gospel and a servant of Christ's church. You didn't call yourself to this work. You didn't push yourself into this on the basis of some kind of false, inflated personal opinion of yourself. You didn't appoint yourself No, your calling and your gift were given by Christ, were recognized, and your office was conferred in a proper way. I myself laid hands upon you. Timothy, this is the work God has gifted you for and called you to and that you've been appointed to. So don't doubt that. Don't question that. And I exhort you, Timothy, to stir up the gift that is in you. Fan it into a flame. The idea of the verb... It's not that Timothy had allowed it to die out, but that he constantly needs to stir it up in order to keep it at full flame, especially now, Timothy, in light of the circumstances. So Paul is saying to Timothy, basically, remember who you are. Remember the responsibility that has been conferred upon you, what has been recognized about you in the laying on of hands and your ordination. And remember your identity. As a man of God, remember that God is gifted, what he has gifted and called you to be, and you have to go at it. You can't run away. You can't hide and wish that all these problems and all these threats would go away. You can't quit. 
You can't take a job as a clerk at the local shoe store. I've often kind of thought that would be a nice, calm, relaxing life. But you, you, you can't do that, Timothy. You can't, let, you can't say, let somebody else deal with these problems. This is what God has gifted and the church of Christ has appointed you to do. I read some statistics a while back that said that 1,700 ministers leave the ministry every month. Every month. And and that only half of those who start out in the ministry last as long as five years. And I don't doubt that. I've observed things like that. Listen to this, this statistic. Barely one in ten will actually retire as a minister. One in ten. But no, Timothy, when my hands were laid upon you together with the eldership mentioned in 1 Timothy 4, you were set apart for this. You've been commissioned and equipped to this work. Therefore, you're under obligation to God and to the church to use your gift and to keep at it. Stoke the fire, Timothy. Fan the flame. Don't let it die out. Get hold of yourself. Stir yourself up all the more in these difficult days to do your work. Now is not the time to draw back in fear. Some, some time ago on another occasion, uh, several years ago, when I was actually reading this passage and thinking about it and studying it, it reminded me of when I played football. <laughs> I played for a high school football program in North Carolina that never had a losing season in 20 years. Uh, most of the teams that we played, we blew them off the field. But there were a couple of teams especially one team, Tuscola, that's in Waynesville, across the other side of the parkway from us. And you knew as soon as you stepped out onto the football field against them that this is different. This is a different story. Or if you didn't know it before, you knew it after the first couple of days. You knew immediately that you better stir yourself up. You better be alert. You better be attentive. You better be fully engaged or you're going to get your head knocked off. You may have heard the saying, you better tighten your chin strap. Well, Paul is saying to Timothy, my beloved son, Timothy, tighten your chin strap. Realize this is what God has gifted and called you to do, and you must embrace your calling and exercise your gift, come what may. Now, this, of course, has a direct application to pastors, but it's also true that God has given gifts to all of us who are in Christ. Every Christian has gifts to be used for the good of of the church and for the cause of the gospel. You say, but I don't know what what they are. Well, you don't really have to know what they are. You don't necessarily have to take some complicated test that someone came up with to identify your spiritual gift. Just do what is right there before you to do now, the opportunities that you have now, and start serving the Lord in his church. Make yourself available. Be all in, and your gifts will soon become evident. In these dark days and challenging times for the cause of Christ, this is... Not the time for some Christians to be AWOL, to be half in the church and half out, to be cold or even lukewarm. We need to be hot, fervent in our devotion to Christ. In the day when so many are falling away from the gospel, let those of us who claim to believe it refuse to stand on the sidelines. Stir yourself up. Let us all do our part. And then the second thing Paul tells Timothy to do is this. Secondly, you must be willing to accept suffering. You must be willing to accept suffering. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, Timothy, if you're going to be faithful to the gospel and to your calling, if you're going to stand firm in your profession of it, in your commitment to it, in your preaching of it, you must be prepared and willing to accept the suffering that faithfulness to the gospel will inevitably sometimes bring. Now, let me borrow an illustration here that I think is helpful. Back during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, you would sometimes hear on the news comments about the terrible suffering experienced by some of our soldiers, the casualties and the injuries and so on, and it was terrible. It was awful. Very, very sad, both for our soldiers and, and so sad for their families. So, so I want to be very careful in what I'm about to say. I don't want to be insensitive, but I think you'll understand what I'm getting at here. 
when there are expressions of shock and dismay at the casualties and sufferings of war. Shouldn't we also remember that it is indeed war? You know, I think a lot of people think of the military now as just a way to get a, get a job, but it is war, right? It, 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 that's what happens in war. It's war, not a picnic. We're deeply saddened by it, but there's another sense in which it's to be expected. When you enlist in the military, what are you enlisting to do? What's the purpose? What's the military all about? Well, you're actually enlisting for the purpose of being trained for war and all that war involves. So if you're in the army and you find yourself in a war and there's casualties and suffering, isn't there a sense in which you should have expected that before you signed up? That's what you're being paid for. Well, Paul is reminding Timothy that suffering is part and parcel of the gospel ministry. And let me add, it's not only something to be expected by pastors. It's to be expected by all of God's people in one form or another. If you're going to be faithful to Christ, it won't be a walk in the park. And this is a a major emphasis in this letter. An emphasis that culminates in chapter 4, verse 13 with these words, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All, he says, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And if you desire to be faithful to Christ, you must be willing to accept it, Paul is saying to him. And in a sense, expect it. Satan and the world of men under his sway hated Christ the head, and they'll hate you. They can't reach Christ now because he's in heaven, but they'll come after you. Jesus said in John 15, 18 and following, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, obviously, all Christians don't suffer in the same way or to the same degree. Thankfully, right now in our own country, we have very little physical persecution at the hands of our government. Probably most of us have never been thrown into prison as Paul was. Perhaps few of us will ever be called upon to suffer a martyr's death, though all of that remains to be seen, right? What will happen in the next decade or two to our children, our grandchildren, it's hard to say. But I'll just say it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. But in one way or another, all of God's people will experience various forms of persecution if we are faithful to Christ. It may not be prison, it may not be torture or death, but they're verbal insults being falsely accused and slandered, lies being told about you or about your family to discredit you, men saying all manner of evil against you falsely for Christ's sake, as Jesus put it. Paul speaks in Philippians 1.28 of having adversaries, the sensing that you have adversaries, certain people who don't like you, people who set themselves against you at work or in the family because of your faith and devotion to Christ, losing your job because you failed to sign the company diversity policy or whatever it may be. These are the kinds of pressures Christians are going to be facing. There's the inward pain that comes from being misunderstood and misrepresented. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And this is especially the lot of those who who are on the front lines, those who are called to lead Christ's church. Those of us who are pastors here this morning, and those of you who aspire to be pastors, we need to understand this. The devil takes out his heaviest artillery against the shepherds of the flock, and he attacks us in many ways. I often think to myself, you know, when I see young men who who are pursuing the ministry, it excites me, it encourages me, but I also think to myself, boy, do they realize what they're really getting into? And I don't say that so people feel sorry for pastors, but it's just the reality. Satan attacks in many, many ways. I was very naive when I became a pastor the first time. Kelly and I talk about it. Our first four or five years of ministry, we called boot camp, our ministerial boot camp. 
I saw things, I heard things, we had things said about us, done to us that I could have never imagined. You know, I don't think anyone could have prepared me for. He attacks in many ways. Slander, lies being told about you, and, and now the, the latest method of that is on social media, unfair criticisms, attacks on your family, those times when you have to be faithful to reprove someone in love and, and it's received with anger. And that person is now opposed to you, is out to get you, coldness towards you by some when your sermons hit a little too close to home for them. Resistance to your efforts to, to lead the church according, carefully according to the scriptures, to implement the principles of biblical church order and to establish Christ's rule in the administration of the church, which sometimes mean, means you have to cross the will of certain people, strong people who don't like to have their will crossed. Or you have to stand against the way things have always been done in that place because the way things have always been done is not biblical. And then there are just all the pressures that come with pastoral ministry. Disappointed hopes, emotional stress, the nasty email. I'll never forget one time we came home from vacation. This is when we were in South Carolina. I went to my answering machine. Back when we had answering machines, you remember those? My wife, my wife went to the mailbox I go to the answering machine. I have this nasty person on the answering machine telling me they're going to sue me and all this kind of stuff because they're some guy in our church that, that she was having an affair with, which I didn't know about, had broken up with her because he told her if Pastor Smith finds out about it, I'll be in trouble. So now she's mad at me and she's going to sue me. And then my, I come to tell my wife about it. Here comes my wife down the driveway with a letter about four pages long, another threatening letter about another situation. And this was, this was common stuff that we, we had to deal with at our first pastorate. And these things happen. And you gotta, you got to be prepared for them. Disappointed hopes, nasty emails, the false accusation. I mean, it used to be people had to actually call you, knock on your door, set up an appointment if they wanted to talk to you about something that was bothering them. Now they can just send you an email. <laughs> just send you a text, and there it is. And just lay it all out right there. What are you supposed to do to that with that? There's the weak among the flock who demand constant attention, the weariness of often laboring week after week, sometimes years with very little fruit to show for it. Well, Paul is telling the minister of the gospel that there is indeed suffering to be endured if you're going to be faithful to your calling, and we must not compromise or quit to try to avoid it. You must be willing to share, Timothy, in the suffering for the gospel. Indeed, Jesus said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. In other words, count it as a badge of honor. So you must stir up your gift, verse 6. You must be willing to accept suffering, verse 8. And then the third directive Paul gives to Timothy in this chapter is in verses 13 to 14, and it's this. Hold fast to and carefully guard sound doctrine. Look at verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And we really, we have two directives here which are just one stated in two different ways. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, that good thing, that good deposit which was committed to you, keep it or guard it. So there's something we're to hold fast and to guard, a deposit that's entrusted to us. And when Paul says we're to hold fast to it and to guard it, the idea is not that we're to sit on it and lock it up safely in a vault somewhere. The idea is that we're to be loyal to it, committed to it. We're to build our lives on it. We must never, never compromise it. We must never let it go. And gospel ministers like Timothy, that's true of all of us, but then gospel ministers like Timothy are to build their ministries upon it and to defend it against error and to proclaim it and to hand it down intact to the generation to follow. And they're also to commit it, chapter 2, verse 2, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But now what exactly is it that we are to hold fast as a church, the ministers of the gospel are to hold fast, and we are to guard in this way? What is the good deposit, this treasure? 
Well, Paul describes it in verse 13 as the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, which you have heard from me, apostolic teaching, which is both rooted in the Old Testament scriptures and handed down to us now in the New Testament scriptures. Now, this is a tremendous statement. It's a very, very important statement. Let's look at it for a moment. First, he refers to sound words, sound teaching, sound doctrine. And at its root, this word means healthy. It's used to speak of that which is reliable, accurate, and health-giving. Second, he refers to the pattern of sound words. Hupotuposis. It's a long Greek word. It's hard to say. Hupotuposis. It means outline or or sketch or pattern. And the assumption behind that word is that sound doctrine has a pattern, an outline. The truth presented in Scripture is interconnected. The Bible is not just a bunch of atomistic, scattered, unrelated verses with helpful devotional thoughts for the day. No, the Bible as a whole, taken together in all its parts, presents us with a comprehensive, coherent system of sound doctrine, referred to here as the pattern of sound words, or sometimes referred to as the truth, or the teaching, or the faith. As you know, the word faith is often used to refer to the personal act of believing, but it's also used and often used to refer to that which is to be believed. The sum of Christian doctrine. Very often when you find the article the before the word faith, the faith, the context is clear that it's not talking about the act of believing. It's talking about the sum of Christian teaching to be believed. The faith, the Christian faith. This language is used many, many times in the New Testament. A few examples, 1 Timothy 3.9. Those who would be elders in the church must hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Jude 1.3, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. The faith, the pattern of sound words, all of this language points to this important truth that there is a definite, coherent, interconnected system of Christian doctrine to be gathered from the teaching of the Bible as a whole, and it is our duty to know it and to believe it and to defend it. And it's the duty of pastors to teach it to their people. The New Testament has a lot to say about the importance of sound doctrine, but as many of you know, we We live in a day in which there's a common attitude out there that's very negative about this whole matter of doctrine. Oh, well, we're not interested in all of this talk about doctrine. You may have heard someone say something like that or maybe something like this. Well, I'm not really interested in your doctrine. I just want to love Jesus and love people. Or I know at your church there's a lot of emphasis on doctrine. But at our church, we're we're just concerned about loving Christ and helping people. And the impression is given that doctrine is something bad. It's something evil to be avoided. Well, here's a good response the next time somebody says something like that to you. Oh, I'm not just into all this doctrine stuff. I just try to focus on loving Jesus. Well, you just ask them this question, okay? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You see, the minute you ask that question, you're in the realm of doctrine. A Jehovah's Witness might say, I love Jesus. But the Jesus he loves is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not God the Son in human flesh, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Someone else says, oh, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and that's enough. I have no creed but the Bible. Okay, but here's a question to ask that person. What does the Bible teach? And again, that brings us into the realm of teaching, doctrine. What does it teach? about God, about creation, about man, about the fall, about sin, about Christ, about salvation, about the Christian life, about the church, about the end. You see, the Bible presents doctrine. 
doctrine to be derived and gathered from the sum of all that the Bible has to say about each of these subjects. And if you don't care about doctrine, you're in great danger of being deceived, my friend, and led astray. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that this is one of the reasons that God has given pastors and teachers to the church is that God's people, Ephesians 4.14, may no longer be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In other words, if they're not solidly grounded in sound doctrine, they'll be easy prey for the damning heresies and serious errors of the false doctrines of false teachers. And our country's full of false teachers. My dear friend, if you're going to be able to stand firm in this evil day, then you need to be tremendously interested in sound doctrine. If you're going to hold fast to it and guard it, you have to know it. You have to want to know it, seek to know it, and to be grounded in it. And your pastors need to be teaching it to you, and you should demand that your pastors do that. If they're not doing that, you need to get rid of them and find a true pastor who will do that. Sound doctrine will guard you against the many dangerous errors that are swirling around today, even in the churches. It puts spiritual backbone into God's people. It produces stability and maturity. And Paul tells us, in fact, just over in chapter 2, verse 16 of this epistle, that false doctrine leads to ungodliness. If you ever read some of the polls that come out concerning professing Christians in our country, it's really quite shocking. They tell us that evangelical Christians in America live no differently than unbelievers do. They commit the same sins. They have the same divorce rate. They live the same lifestyles and so on. And let me hasten to say that I take those polls with a grain of salt. I don't believe for one moment that true Christians in America, true Christians, live no differently than the world. You have to ask the question, how do the pollsters define a Christian? But then something else that puts those polls in a proper perspective is when you read what so many of these professed Christians actually believe. What they believe about God and about salvation and about the Bible and about heaven and hell and so on. When you see the crazy unbiblical things so many people who claim to be Christian believe, the way they live is not so shocking after all. Because false doctrine leads to ungodliness into a flighty, unstable, confused kind of Christianity that brings great reproach upon Christ. So at all costs, we must hold fast and carefully guard sound doctrine. But you'll also notice the balance here. And this is important in verse 13. Notice the balance. We're to hold fast the pattern of sound words in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Our commitment to doctrinal orthodoxy, our commitment to our confession of faith is to be within an atmosphere of faith and love. Faith and love that comes from a real living union relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, our commitment to sound doctrine is not to be merely some kind of academic intellectual exercise. The fact is you, you can know all the right doctrine and still not even be a true Christian. You know, I, I will say this, you know, I'll tell you one person who knows doctrine better than any of us in this room, Satan. He knows all the doctrines. No, we're to hold it fast in an atmosphere of love and genuine faith in Christ. And we're not to hold it fast with some kind of bombastic, mean-spirited, arrogant attitude. That's what sometimes happens. We're not to be mean-spirited cranks who like to pick theological arguments with people just to show how superior we are. No, we're to hold it fast in the spirit of love and compassion. As Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. If people are offended, let it be the truth that offends them and not that you've tried to beat them over the head with it with a mean-spirited, arrogant attitude. So you see the wonderful balance here. 
a strong commitment to sound doctrine, and a climate of faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. So this is what we must do. Stir up the gift of God that is in you. Be willing to accept suffering for the gospel and hold fast to and carefully guard sound doctrine. These are Paul's directives and exhortations in this first chapter. But knowing Timothy as we do, and ourselves as we do, if this were all that Paul said, we might say, yes, but Paul, how will I ever be able to do these things? I know this is what I must do, but I'm so weak, I, I'm so faltering, I'm, 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 so, uh, I'm a beginner in many ways, that the challenges are so great, I don't know if I can handle it, keep to it. Well, Paul not, Paul not only gives exhortations and directives to Timothy. Notice with me in the, in the time we have remaining, the encouragements and motivations that Paul applies. And again, there are basically three. First, Paul says to Timothy and to us, consider your resources. Consider your resources. Timothy, you must do these things. You must stir yourself up and exert yourself in these things with all of your soul, and it won't be easy. But don't think for a moment you'll be left to your own strength. As you commit yourself to this and strive to do what I have set before you, remember what God, that God has provided ample resources by which he will strengthen you, and he will enable you to do all that he has called you to do. Now, notice how that emphasis runs throughout this chapter. Verse 6, Timothy, stir up the gift of God that is in you. How? Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Verse 8, Timothy, don't be ashamed, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel. Yes, but I'm afraid that I'll fail, that I can't do it. I'm afraid that when I face the pressure, I'll chicken out and I'll compromise. How will I be able to stand? He says, share with me in the sufferings of the gospel. How? At the end of verse 8, according to the power of God. Timothy, hold fast to the pattern of sound words, that good thing which was committed to you. Keep, how? The end of verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And we see the same thing in the first verse of chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong. Are you talking to me, Mr. Weakling? Yes, but you, my son, be strong. How? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Consider your resources, the power of God, the grace of God, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. It's all just different ways of saying the same thing, isn't it? My dear brother and sister in Christ here this morning, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Therefore, as you seek to fulfill the duties and responsibilities God has given to you, you will not be left to yourself Christ, by the Spirit, will give you the grace you need to do all that he commands you to do, to face every challenge that he allows to come into your life as you look prayerfully and believingly to him for it. John Owen said it well. The duties God requires of us are not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. Rather, they are proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. So remember that. Consider your resources. Secondly, Paul says, remember the greatness and the glory of this gospel which has saved you and for which we stand. You say, where do you see that in the chapter? Look at verses 9 and 10. Suddenly in the middle of all this practical instruction, Paul launches out into one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel that we find in the whole Bible. Why is he doing that? Is this just Paul getting carried away again? He does that sometimes, doesn't he? Yes, I think he is getting carried away with a sense of the glory of the cause for which he suffers. But he's carried away with a purpose. He wants to remind Timothy of what it's all about, what this gospel is that we preach, what God has done for us. And it's for him and for this cause, Paul says, verse 12, that we suffer these things. So as I exhort you to share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, remember how wonderful the gospel is. Here's something that is indeed worth living for, worth devoting your life to, even dying for. Now, everything about the gospel is not in these two verses, but there's a lot packed into these two verses. Notice he speaks first, 
in verse 9, of what God through the gospel has done for us. Verse 9. He says, who saved us and called us with a holy calling. He has saved us. He has saved us from our sins and from eternal hell. We've been forgiven. We've been reconciled to God. All of our sins have, have been cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. The debt has been paid at the cross. And he's not only saved us from the guilt of our sins and from the hell that we deserve, he's also changing us. And he is committed to making us holy like Christ. This is what he's done for us. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. And on what basis has he done this? He goes on, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. It's not because of anything we've done. We don't deserve it. We don't have to deserve it. We don't earn it by doing good works. No, it's all of grace. It's a free gift. It's God's undeserved favor, freely given to sinners who deserve just the opposite. And when did God decide to give this grace to us? It is according, he says, to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. If you're a Christian this morning, why are you a Christian? Why was I made to hear his voice and enter while there's room, while others make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? It's because even before time began, when there was only God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, nothing else, before time began, God set his love upon you. Before you ever chose him, he had already chosen you and determined to save you in Christ before time began. And then he tells us that this was then revealed in time and space in history at the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 10. Has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, there were glimpses of it in shadows and types and prophecies of the Old Testament, but it was revealed in the fullness of blazing light when the Son of God appeared, when he came to this earth in human flesh, born in a manger in Bethlehem, as he lived and walked upon this sin-cursed earth, and he went to the cross, and there God's great purpose of grace to us was accomplished when he died for our sins, and he paid the debt that we owed to the justice of God there upon the cross, and in his resurrection, verse 10, by which he, as Paul says, destroyed the power of death over us. He has brought immortality and life, uh, life and immortality to light, he says, so that we can be assured Death is not the end for us. Timothy, they may kill us. It may be a difficult life that we have to live in many ways. Timothy, it's hard to know what's going to happen in our lives. But our Savior has conquered death on behalf of his people so that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then on that day when Christ returns, our glorified bodies will be reunited with our now resurrected and glorified bodies, and we will worship and serve Christ throughout the endless ages of eternity in the new heavens and upon the new earth. Timothy, Timothy, it's for this glorious gospel by which God has saved us with such a great salvation that I've been appointed a preacher an apostle, and a teacher. And it's for this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Brothers and sisters, God has done all of this for us. This is the gospel we preach that we stand for. Let's not be ashamed of it either. And then thirdly and finally, Paul says, to summarize it, think of me and of the example of others who have kept the faith. Be moved by our example to do the same. Now, Paul doesn't actually say that to Timothy, but that's precisely what he puts before Timothy's mind. First, he gives his own example, verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, Timothy. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. And then in verses 15 to 18, he gives two other examples. One is an example of a man who defected and went astray. Verse 15, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And then he gives the example of Onesiphorus, a man Timothy knew, who had remained true. Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Dear friends, each of us right now are building a legacy 
You're building a legacy that you'll be remembered for by all those who knew you and will learn about you when you're gone. What kind of legacy will it be? What kind of legacy do you want it to be? When the last words are said about you at the end of the journey, what will they be? Which of these two categories of men described in this passage do you want to be? Do you want to be in the category of those like Phagellus and Hermogenes who caved in and compromised and defected? Or those who remained faithful? Think about Paul, that old warrior of Christ, sitting in chains in that damp prison, soon to be martyred, but standing firm to the very end. Think of his testimony. Chapter 4 of this epistle. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the faith. I, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Don't you want to be able to say that? I do. To be able to say that with joy when you come to the end, and for others to be able to say that about you. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He has kept the faith. But not only think about Paul and Onesiphorus and other saints of God we read about in the Bible. Think about dear saints of God that you've known and loved who remain faithful and have now gone to be with the Lord. Think about the history of the church. The great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. Think about the thousands and thousands of martyrs who gave their lives for Christ. And for the gospel. They were just normal people. Like you and me. Men and women. And even sometimes children. Of like passions as we are. Weak and struggling. Often tossed with doubts and fears. But they kept the faith. How did they do it? By the Holy Spirit. Who is dwelling in them. Well brothers and sisters. Let us resolve. That depending on the same spirit. Who dwells in us. That we too will stay true to Christ and to the faith once delivered to the saints. Whatever the cost, whatever happens, we'll stay true to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word. Your word is powerful. It is practical. It is so relevant. We thank you for feeding us from your word today. Help us to take these principles to heart these exhortations and these comforts that we might be a people, a church, that we might as individuals, that those who are in the Christian ministry might be as Christian ministers, those who remain faithful and true to our Lord, stirring up the gift that's in us, willing if necessary to suffer for the gospel, holding fast to the pattern of sound words. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.